You give Teller from Jerusalem 20 minutes, and he'll give you the education of a lifetime. King of the storytellers and the Shakespeare of the Torah world, here is Rabbi Hanok Teller. Hello out there in podcast land. Welcome to Teller from Jerusalem and an exciting episode about the story of the unsung hero, Eddie Jacobson, and an inspiring lesson of what friendship and loyalty can achieve. To remind us, the United States had voted for partition, but because it feared that it could not, that Israel could not stand up to the Arab armies, there were second guesses if the United States would recognize Israel after it declared independence. And here we turn again to the remarkable book by David McCullough, The Biography of President Harry Truman. Truman's patience wore thin. He refused to make further comment on Palestine, refused to see any more Zionist spokesmen, even ruling out a visit from Dr. Chaim Weizmann the grand old man of world Zionist leaders, who, despite failing health, had sailed from London for the expressed purpose of seeing President Truman. Weizmann, a renowned scientist, now 74, had devoted a large part of his life to the dream of Jewish homeland. Small, charming, and clever, he had been one of the architects of the Balfour Declaration. Also, he and Truman had already met and knew each other and liked one another. At the first meeting, as Truman remembered, he had not known how to pronounce Chaim, so I called him Cham. He liked it. He was a wonderful man, one of the wisest people I think I've ever met, a leader, one of the kind you read about. They had met secretly in the White House on November 1947, just before the UN vote on partition, and the effect on Truman was nearly as pronounced as it had been on the British Foreign Secretary, Lord Balfour, 30 years earlier. Spreading a map on Truman's desk, Weizmann had fascinated the former Missouri farmer with agricultural possibilities in the Negev Desert, the future control of which was still at issue. Truman pledged his support for the, for the inclusion of the Negev in the Jewish state. You can bank on us, Truman had said. And as Weizmann would write with wry understatement, I was extremely happy to find that the president read the map quickly and clearly. But now Truman had closed the door to the little doctor, and this, to Weizmann and his American Zionist allies, was an especially distressing sign. What to do? Weizmann came to America, and Truman refused to see him. Frank Goldman, the head of B'nai B'rith, then a leading Jewish organization, turned to Jacobson, who had been President Truman's former business partner and friend from the army, and asked him to intervene. I want to interject here. And as a rule, when partners go bankrupt, which is what happened to Truman and Jacobson in their haberdashery shop, it is very rare for them to remain friends, or even modestly friendly. Furthermore, Eddie Jacobson single-handedly paid off all the debts from their bankruptcy, which Truman greatly admired. Jacobson wrote to the president, and he replied that, he was nothing new, that there was nothing new that Weizmann could tell him. Jacobson then traveled to Washington, and as Truman's long-standing friend, he gained entrance to the White House through a side entrance. Before going into the Oval Office, Jacobson was warned not to raise the issue of Palestine with the President. And that is exactly what Jacobson did, and the President scolded him. And again I turn to McCullough's biography, where he writes, Jacobson brought up Palestine. Truman, suddenly tense and grim-faced, responded in hard, abrupt fashion. Not at all like himself, Jacobson thought. And all the years of our friendship, he never talked to me in this manner, or in any way even approaching it, Jacobson would remember. 
Truman later told Clark Clifford that he was not angry at Jacobson so much, at the, but as and at the people who were using Jacobson to get to him. He had no wish to talk about Palestine or the Jews or the Arabs or the British, Truman said. He would leave that to the United Nations. He spoke bitterly of the abuse he had been subjected to, of how disrespectful and mean certain Jews had been to him. What he was referring to was eight days after he was in office, he was greeted by leaders, American Jewish leaders came to visit him, and Abahila Silver began banging on the table and telling Truman what he must do. Truman felt that you have to have respect for a president. You don't scream at him, bang your fist, or give him instructions. Jake, I can back with the biography. Jacobson thought suddenly, and sadly, that, quote, my dear friend, the president of the United States, what is that moment as close to being an anti-Semite as a man could possibly be? Jacobson tried arguing back. I'm now surprised at myself that I had the nerve, he later wrote, but Truman was unmoved. Jacobson felt crushed. On a table to the right, against the wall, was one of the president's prized possessions, a small bronze of Andrew Jackson on horseback. And this is what Jacobson said to the president. Harry, all your life you have had a hero. I too have a hero, a man I never met, but who is, I think, the greatest Jew who ever lived. I'm talking about Chaim Weizmann. He is a very sick man, almost broken in health, but he traveled thousands of miles just to see you and plead the cause of my people. Now you refuse to see him just because you are insulted by some of our American Jewish leaders, even though you know that Weizmann had absolutely nothing to do with these insults, would be the last man to be party to them. It doesn't sound like you, Harry, because I thought you could take this stuff they've been handing out. As Abba Eben later wrote, the comparison between Weizmann and Andrew Jackson was unimaginably far-fetched, and yet it worked. Truman began drumming his fingers on the desk. He wheeled around in his chair with his back to Jacobson and he sat looking out the window to the garden. For what to Jacobson seemed like centuries, neither of them said anything. Then swinging about and looking Jacobson in the eye, Truman said what Jacobson later described as his most endearing words he had ever heard. You win, you bald-headed son of a bitch. I will see him. From the White House, Jacobson walked directly across Lafayette Square and up 16th Street to the bar at Statler where, as never before in his life, he downed two double bourbons. The discussion between President Truman and Weizmann lasted nearly an hour on March 18, 1948, and was cordial. Weizmann's unfailing dignity and charm, in marked contrast to this near hysteria of the American Zionists, had their effect on the president. I trolled him, Truman wrote, why I had at first put off seeing him. He understood. I explained to him what the basis of my interest was in the Jewish problem, and that my primary concern was to see justice done without bloodshed. When he left my office, I felt that I had received a full understanding of my policy and that I knew what he wanted. As always, David McCullough paints an accurate, thoroughly readable, and memorable account. But as this story is so charming and such an inspiring account about one of the significant but unknown players in history, as well as a master lesson in a theme that we touch upon often in Tell It From Jerusalem, as to how it is often the unsung heroes, often individuals whose names we are not even aware of, played such a significant role in shaping history, unknown to others and often unknown to themselves. Two quick examples are the French girl, who was so kind to the daughter of the Dominican Republic's dictator, Malato daughter, 
that resulted in a thousand, thousands of Jewish lives being spared. And Alfred Dreyfus, surely a well-known name, but he went to his death unaware of what a critical role he would play in the formation of the State of Israel. I wish to read to you a few selections from Ambassador Yehuda Abner's intimate personal narrative of Israeli premiership, the Prime Minister's. The background to this story is the former President Truman lent his name to a peace research institute in Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Prime Minister Levi Eshkol was grateful to Truman for this kind and his courage and determination to support Israel at the time of its founding in 1948. This would probably be the place to insert the fact that had Rosal been president, it is not likely things would have played out the same way. Prime Minister Eshkol, a brilliant, wise, and courageous man, who did not receive the credit that he deserved from the Israeli public, wrote a letter to President Truman to thank him. Ambassador Avner, between his councillor postings, served as a speechwriter and secretary for four Israeli prime ministers. Vega nicknamed him Shakespeare. So Avner came into the Prime Minister Eshkol to have the letter signed, and in the room were some American philanthropists that had donated significantly and labored strenuously on behalf of Israel. These gentlemen were complaining that they were very knowledgeable about Israel. But the Israelis knew nothing about American Jewry and the problems that faced the Jewish communities of America. Abner was then asked if he had ever been to America, and the answer was never. It was arranged then and there that he would travel to America to better understand the American Jewry and would travel coast to coast for one month, all on condition that he not make a single speech. At this point, Eshkol inquired if Independence, Missouri would be on the itinerary. The reply was that Kansas City was a generous Jewish community and independence is nearby, so it could be arranged. Independence, of course, is where Truman was from and where he had retired. At that point, Eshkol said very contently that Avner would be his personal representative to deliver the letter as a token of Eshkol's respect. I now turn to Avner's rendition of his morning walk with the president. I kind of like that. A morning constitutional and independence. So, Ambassador Avner goes to former President Truman's house. As he walks in, there is Harry Truman about to go on his walk. And he says, I'm about to take my daily walk, young man, he said sprightly, and I'd be pleased if you would care to join me. Truman added, Very kind of Prime Minister Eshkol to send you personally to deliver his letter, and kinder still to give me such credit for your nation's independence, but the man he really ought to be thanking is Eddie Jacobson, not me. How so, I asked. That question came from Ambassador Yehuda Avner. Because I wavered, and I wavered a lot. It was Eddie who, was made, who made sure I kept America's weight behind Israeli statehood when it was most needed. Then Truman paused at the memory of the man and muttered, Dear old Eddie, best friend a man could ever have, honest to a fault, may he rest in peace. Truman's voice mellowed when he spoke thus of his World War I buddy and longtime business partner. It mellowed even more when he confided, Except for one time when he wanted me to see a Zionist leader I was not anxious to see, and all of our 30 years of friendship, there was never a sharp word between Eddie and me. And we've been through some tough times together, believe me. There was the Great War, then our haberdashery venture, which was no howling success. So when Eddie came barging in to see me unannounced one day at the Oval Office, it must have been sometime in March 48, I was surprised. And all my years in Washington... He had never, ever done that. Never had he asked me for a thing. But on that day in the White House, he was visibly upset. He said he wanted to talk to me about Palestine. I'll tell you exactly why I was upset with Eddie. 
when he came barging into my Oval Office, because his Zionist friends had been badgering me no end. Some were so disrespectful and mean to me, I didn't want any more truck with them. Many chose to believe that their Zionist program was the same as my U.S.-Palestine policy. It was not. They wanted me to engage, in, to engage America to stop Arab attacks on the Jews in Palestine, keep the British from supporting the Arabs, deploy American soldiers to do this, that, and the other. And all the while the British were putting it about that my interest in helping the Jews enter Palestine was because I didn't want them in America. I'll teach you an important lesson, young man, said Truman to Ambassador Avner. Never kick a turd on a hot day. And those were very hot days. My patience was being drawn so tight, I issued instructions that I didn't want to see any more Zionist spokesmen. That's why I put off seeing Dr. Weitzman. He'd come to the States specially to see me. But Eddie was insistent that I see him right away. I told him that if I saw Dr. Weitzman, it would only result in more wrong interpretations of my Palestine policy. I'd had enough of that. Because of them, I had words with Eddie, he said vehemently. He knew that the fate of the Jewish victims of Hitlerism was a matter of deep personal concern to me. The extermination of the Jews was one of the most shocking crimes of all times. Hitler's war against the Jews was not just a Jewish problem. It was an American problem. I had been seized of the issue from the day I became president. Now things had reached a point when I wanted to let the whole Palestine partition matter run its course in the United Nations. That's where it belonged. Then Eddie turned to me and he said, You see that statue of Andrew Jackson? He was marking the miniature bronze of the 7th President of the United States on horseback. I had that in my Oval Office. Jackson is my lifelong hero. So when Eddie confronted me that day in the White House, insisting I see Chaim Weizmann, he waved to that statue and reminded me that when we had the haberdashery store together, I was forever reading books about Andrew Jackson. He also reminded me that I had put up a Jackson statue in Kansas City Square. Then, Eddie said, and I remember his words exactly. He said, your hero is Andrew Jackson. I have a hero too. He is the greatest Jew alive. I'm talking about Chaim Weizmann. He's an old man and very sick, and he's traveled thousands of miles to see you. And now you're putting him off. This isn't like you, Harry. That's what he said. I remember looking hard out the window, looking hard back at Eddie standing there, and my saying to him, you bald-headed son of a bee, you win. I'll see him. Wistfully Truman went on. Dr. Weitzman and I talked for almost an hour. He was a man of remarkable achievements and personality, who had known many disappointments, had grown patient and wisened him. He put it to me that the choice for his people was between statehood and extermination. It was then that I assured him that I would support Jewish statehood. Leaning back then, right foot on left knee, Harry Truman began to speak about his own State Department as if it was the enemy. I knew then what I had to do, he said. I had to handle those striped-pant boys, the boys with the Harvard, he pronounced it Harvard, accents. Those State Department fellows were always trying to put it over on me about Palestine, telling me that I really didn't understand what was going on there, that I ought to leave it to the experts. Some were anti-Semitic, I'm sorry to say. Dealing with them was as rough as a cob. The last thing they wanted was an instant American recognition of a Jewish statehood. I had my own second thoughts and doubts too, but I'd made my commitment to Dr. Weizmann. And my attitude was that as long as I was president, I'd see to it that I was the one who made policy, not the second or third echelons at the State Department. So on the day the Jewish state was declared, 
I gave those officials about 30 minutes notice what I intended to do. No more. So they couldn't throw a spanner into the works. And then exactly 11 minutes after the proclamation of independence, I had my press secretary, Charlie Ross, issued the announcement that the United States recognized Israel de facto. And that was that. Continues Avner. He shook me warmly by the hand with the command that I tender his personal best to Prime Minister Eshkol and thank him warmly for his letter. Having devoted so much attention to the role of Harry Truman in recognizing Israel and how he got there, I think it would be fitting to conclude with a few minutes of the address by Dr. Kurt Graham, who is the Harry S. Truman Library Museum Director, on the occasion of his address to the Heroic Friends of Israel in July 2018, sponsored by the American Jewish Committee. In the weeks leading up to the creation of the State of Israel, that crucial meeting likely would not have occurred but for Eddie Jacobson's personal plea to his old friend. Despite Truman's many personal connections and motives that made support for the newly forming state a reasonable and even logical extension of his perspective and experience, it was, of course, not quite that straightforward. As the question of whether to extend recognition came to a head, forces swirled in and around Harry Truman and pressed as few factors ever have on a presidential decision. The persistence of what he called the problem of Palestine set Truman at odds with the close U.S. ally, the British. It caused him to be undermined by his own State Department. It pitted his closest advisors and friends against one another. And it even threatened to jeopardize his upcoming re-election campaign. But in the end, it was more than friendship. It was more than faith. And it was certainly more than politics or even foreign policy that brought Harry Truman to the decision to recognize Israel. What stands out for me about this and so many of the decisions that Truman made is that not only did he do what he thought was the right thing, but he did so for the right reasons. A phrase he used over and over again when he addressed this topic was to relieve human suffering. This was ever his primary concern. He later stated that his policy in Palestine was not an Arab policy or a Jewish policy. It was an American policy because it was based on the desire to see promises kept and human misery relieved. When Truman extended recognition to Israel just minutes after the new Jewish state was declared, reaction varied from elation to devastation, from the highest praise to the deepest criticism. But Truman never wavered. I had faith in Israel even before it was established, he once said. I knew it was based on the love of freedom, which has been the guiding star of the Jewish people since the days of Moses. I believe it has a glorious future before it, not just as a sovereign nation, but as an embodiment of the great ideals of our civilization. Years later, Truman grew visibly emotional when Rabbi Isaac Herzog told him, God put you in your mother's womb so you would be the instrument to bring the rebirth of Israel after 2,000 years. No less a statesman than the great David Ben-Gurion said of Harry Truman, as a foreigner, I could not judge what would be his place in American history. But his helpfulness to us, his constant sympathy with our aims in Israel, 
his courageous decision to recognize our state so quickly, and his steadfast support since then, has given him an immortal place in Jewish history. Thanks for listening to Teller from Jerusalem, where this series takes an intelligent and thought-provoking look at the past in order to acquire a perspective on the present. Spread knowledge by giving us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. Join us next time for a brand new episode and be sure to visit tellerfromjerusalem.com where you can find more details about the show and other useful information. Check out the site store and just by inserting TFJ code, you'll receive an additional 10% discount off the already very reduced prices of all Hanoch Teller products, books, lectures, and documentaries. And remember, don't forget, you can get Teller from Jerusalem on any podcast platform or go to tellerfromjerusalem.com.